Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, where we are committed to providing our community with voices of conscience, key issues in ethical perspective. I'm Tim Hart Anderson, the senior minister here at Westminster Presbyterian Church, located on Nicollet Mall in beautiful downtown Minneapolis, and the moderator of today's program. We invite those of you who are listening to us on Minnesota Public Radio to visit us in person. Information on upcoming town hall forums can be found online at eWestminster.org. It's my pleasure to welcome the first speaker in our four-part spring series, At Home in America. Dr. Mary Pfeiffer is a clinical psychologist and widely read author of six books, including the best-selling Reviving Ophelia, Another Country, and The Shelter of Each Other. Dr. Pfeiffer received her BA in Cultural Anthropology from the University of California at Berkeley in 1969, and her PhD in Clinical Psychology from the University of Nebraska in 1977. She is the recipient of the American Psychological Association's Presidential Citation and has been a Rockefeller Foundation Scholar in Residence. Dr. Pfeiffer's work combines her training in both psychology and cultural anthropology. Her special area of interest is the impact of American culture on the mental health of its people. Dr. Pfeiffer travels around the world sharing her ideas with community groups, with schools, healthcare professionals, and we are pleased that she is with us in Minneapolis today. The topic of Dr. Pfeiffer's presentation is taken from one of her most recent books, The Middle of Everywhere, The World's Refugees Come to Our Town. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Mary Pfeiffer. Thank you very much. Greetings. It's an honor to be here at the Westminster Town Hall Forum in this very beautiful church in this city of readers. I always think about books when I think about Minneapolis. I'm going to speak today about my book, The Middle of Everywhere, The World's Refugees Come to Our Town. It's a book that looks at how my city, Lincoln, Nebraska, is becoming part of the global culture. Our city is an official refugee resettlement community, which means we have people from all over the world coming in. We have 52 languages now in our public schools, and Lincoln has become in the last 15 years Sudanese, Vietnamese, Russian, Afghan, Bos uh, Bosnian, Croatian, Somalian, and so on. Now, I just want to say something about the definition of a refugee. All refugees are legal. There's no such thing as an illegal refugee. It is a, a legal designation, meaning a person who cannot stay where they are without being in danger of being tortured, imprisoned, and killed. And they are a person in a particular group, and the group must be defined by religion, language, ethnicity, or political party. So at any rate, What's happened in um, Lincoln is once refugees are adjudicated to be refugees and sent to this country, generally through JFK Airport, they're met at the airport by a INS official who hands them a plane ticket to Lincoln, Nebraska. They have no choice about coming to the US and they definitely have no choice about coming to Nebraska. 
In fact, a pretty common thing that happens is when the refugees arrive in our town, they don't know where Nebraska is. They're confused. Sometimes they think they're actually in Alaska, and they look for polar bears and igloos. But many of them have no idea what state they're in or where our state is located. Now, here's how I did the research for this book. I've got a, a degree in anthropology, too. And from my point of view, this book was the perfect book for me to write because I could study people from all over the world, and not just in the casual way of a tourist, but I could do family therapy, I could help people with their troubled teenagers and so on, and yet go home and sleep in my own bed every night. So it was just a wonderful project for me, given my interests. I spent a year at an elementary school in an ESL classroom, and the children in this classroom, level one, came in knowing absolutely no English at all. The amazing thing is, by May, they could speak pretty good English. Their language centers were just on. They were in that good, critical time. And this is important, because by the time these children are speaking good English, their parents, and especially their grandparents, are just barely learning the rudiments of our language. I also spent uh, the same year, actually, some of the time in the high school, and we could talk about that experience all morning. The only thing I would say about it is I entitled that chapter, Mohammed Meets Madonna. And it was just a zone of cultural collisions, one after another. Incredibly interesting space for an anthropologist. I spent a lot of time with the young adults um, of the refugee community. In many ways, they have the most difficult situation. They're too old to go to school, but they're young enough that they pick up English quickly enough that they end up being responsible for their parents. They end up being the most likely person to drive, to be able to fill out paperwork, to work and, and support the family financially. And yet, in many cases, they're, they're very ill-equipped to um, actually deal with American culture. And the example of this I, I uh, use in the title is, that chapter is entitled, Is There a Marriage Broker in Lincoln? One of the things about many of our refugees, they come from cultures in which there's absolutely no dating. You marry a person chosen for you by your, your family. You meet that person at most once or twice before the wedding day. And so one of the things that happened to me a lot, I, I did a lot of work in the factories as kind of an informal labor negotiator or something like this, or I'd help people find cars. And, and once the young adults started to trust me, Almost invariably, they would say to me, could you find me a husband, or could you find me a wife? And I'd go, well, no, I can't do that. Although I was tempted, I wanted to every now and then, I, had a, I, I could see it happening. And then they would say, well, where are the marriage brokers in Lincoln? I offered everyone I worked with free therapy. I'd come to their house in my old Honda and, and offer free therapy. Very few people took me up on that. And that's a big story in itself, why refugees don't like therapy. But they would let me take them to the doctor, or take them to the grocery store, or take them and their children to a swimming pool or the park. And so that's how I got to know people, driving them around, being useful, taking them to places they wanted to go. I also started a mental health project called the Thrive Project, which was a, a group of us psychologists meeting with um, leaders of each of our refugee communities, the Russian, the Bosnian, the Vietnamese, the Lao, and so on, Latino also. And we were going to explain to them various subtleties of the mental health 
uh, system in America and talk to them about how Americans handle things like stress and so on. But fortunately, almost immediately, we wised up and realized what we really should do with these two months that we spent once a week with this group of refugees is listen to how they handle these issues in their culture and learn about um, how do they handle domestic violence, how do they handle suicide attempts, what do they do when they're despairing, and so on. And so that was uh, uh, the Thrive Project. By far the most valuable thing I did, my husband Jim and myself, was we became what I ended up calling cultural brokers to three families. And one of the families was from the Kakuma refugee camp. Uh, a lot of times in the news they're called the lost, um, the lost boys or, of Sudan or the... I, I don't like that. I don't like the word lost. And I, and I don't like the word boys, because most of the, the people are now uh, men. In our family's case, actually, there was a sister, three boys and a sister that came over. Um, and the oldest, Joseph, was 19. He had been uh, seven when his family was killed. And he had managed to shepherd all of his siblings through horrible civil war, refugee camp in Ethiopia, and finally life in um, Kenya in the Kakuma camp. We also had a, befriended a couple from Sierra Leone um, who had gotten caught up in the war and Bintu, the wife, calls Sierra Leone the worstest place on earth. And indeed, the year they came to us, um, and people come, by the way, very um, quickly after they're traumatized. I mean, when I met Bintu, she still had scars from some of the things that had happened to her. But um, Amnesty International considered Sierra Leone the worst place on earth. And um, they had, Mohammed had seen his family killed. Uh, Bintu had been captured by the rebels and, and held for over a year as a wife and actually had escaped naked when the rebels invaded Freetown on that awful day when they chopped off all the arms and legs of people in Freetown. And then they had lost their children. They'd been kidnapped and sold to the diamond uh, miners in the south. So. When I met them, they were uh, really in a very difficult spot. But the last family we befriended is the one I want to tell you a little bit about today, partly because they come from Baghdad, which is a, a place we're very interested in right now as Americans, and partly because I, I did the most with them and, and know them the best. But this was six Kurdish sisters and their mother. And they had a very interesting past. The father had worked for the uh, pre-Saddam government. And when Saddam came into power, he killed all the people, um, like the father in this family. He was killing all their friends. And so the family escaped at night. Um, the, the men separately from the women, which was important, because the women were sent to, first of all, they, they walked to a camp in Iran, a refugee camp. And this place was a very harsh camp with mullahs who, for example, one thing the mullahs did is if a young woman wore any lipstick, they would break some glass and, and put it in a, a handkerchief and rub the lipstick or rouge off with the broken glass. And the girls were made to wear what they call thick black curtains and not allowed to go to school. Well, they were in this camp, the, the six women and their mother, for um, about a year and a half. And then they escaped. They, they paid someone, and, and this person had horses, and, and they rode to um, Quetta, which has been in the news quite a bit. It's a Taliban. Uh, ex-Taliban center and, and it's a hotbed of uh, radicalism, Muslim radicalism now. But they were in Quetta. 
They had no men to accompany them. So what that meant was they stayed in a little tiny hut. And once a week, some aid workers brought them a package of food. And they lived in this little hut with a few reading materials and a radio for seven years. These beautiful young women lost their teenage years, their young adult years for the most part, just rotting in this hut. And finally, they went on a hunger strike. Said they wouldn't eat anymore if they didn't get out of there. And so the, the, the aid agency um, transported them to Islamabad, where they lived a year. They watched some American TV, learned a little bit of English. And I met them in Lincoln, Nebraska, a week after they were flown from Islamabad to Lincoln. And I was interviewing the oldest daughter, I mean the youngest daughter, Shireen, I call her in the book, at the public schools as part of my work there, and gave her a ride home, gave her my card. And about a week later, she called me up. She's a very enterprising girl, wanted to support her family, very poor as all the refugees are. She called me up, and she'd seen a matchbook with a model on it, and it said, send $75 and you can be a supermodel. So she wanted to know, did I think she could be a supermodel and should she send this money? And of course I said, no, do not send any money. Well, about two weeks later, she called me up and she'd um, uh, seen an ad to send money and she could become an artist. And she wanted to know if I thought she should send in $100 for art training and then she was a good artist. She could support her family as an artist. So again, I said, no, don't send any money. And I said, I'm going to come over and start visiting with you and your sisters and your mom. And that's kind of when we, we got started. I did something very heroic with this family. I taught all six daughters how to drive. And boy, that was hard work. One of the daughters, for example, almost killed us before I realized that she thought when you came to an intersection with a stop sign, you were supposed to drive right out exactly under the stop sign. And this same daughter, Mina, had a way of driving whenever we'd pass, I couldn't figure this out for a while, but whenever we'd pass a speed limit sign, she would just either slam on the brakes or just push on the gas. And finally I figured out, she thought you had to be going, if you pass a sign that said 40 miles an hour, you had to be going exactly 40 miles an hour when you pass that sign. So I taught them all to drive. I took them to our Museum of Natural History and showed them dinosaurs. I always take refugees to our, our our Museum of Natural History, because so many of them have had no science at all, and they're just absolutely amazed by the concept of evolution and natural history and extinct animals. And, and then I took them camping on the Platte, because like many refugees, they love the natural world. And of course, we know that a lot of both physical and mental healing um, come from being around water, being around uh, trees, and so on. But, but uh, one example of interesting kind of discussions we had with them was before the 2000 election. We were sitting on a loading dock by a coffee shop we have down in the old district of, of downtown Lincoln. And it was before the, the, the Bush-Gore election. And I was telling him how elections work in our country. Of course, it turned out to all be irrelevant. But, <laughs> but I was, for heuristic purposes, giving them example of, here's what Republicans believe, and here's what Democrats believe. And I was kind of overstating, at that time the divergence wasn't as great quite as it is now. Oh, but I was overstating the differences to explain. And, and of course I was telling them how I thought they should vote. And, but anyway, as I talked to them, 
their eyes got wider and wider at listening to me. And I, I knew them well enough to know by then I was scaring them. So I stopped and I asked, what is wrong? What is wrong? And, and Shireen said to me, if the candidate that you and Jim uh, do not vote for, vote for loses, will you be shot? And that had been their experience, that if your candidate lost, you were shot. So I learned a great deal myself, being a cultural broker. And I think that um, more and more the world is going to need cultural brokers. The Dalai Lama said it very well when he was talking about Tibet. He said, in our globalized world, nobody gets to be left alone anymore. Whether we like it or not, we will be as mixed together as salt and pepper. One in five children in this country is foreign-born at this point, and those rates are, are only going to go up in the next decade. And I think the most important people, not only in our culture, but in cultures all over the world, are going to be cultural brokers that connect people to people, people to systems, systems to systems, that explain to people dealing with the enormous transitions what the deal is, wherever they need to know what the deal is. And um, here's just an example as a cultural broker of some of the things I taught refugees how to walk on snow and ice. Now, you people in Minnesota know how to do that. But when you think about it, that's a complicated set. You learn what kind of shoes to wear. You learn to evaluate different surfaces. You learn this kind of flat-footed walk. Refugees coming from Sudan, not surprisingly, when they go out the first time on ice, they fall down. And they sometimes get pretty badly hurt. How to use escalators, elevators, revolving doors what to store in a refrigerator, what's the lifespan of Americans, why I don't beat my children, what to do when a tornado siren calls, the Africans call tornadoes the big winds, what are band-aids, sanitary napkins, dental floss, and deodorant, what animals Americans eat and do not eat, what's a buffalo, how to wear socks, why we shouldn't litter, and how to eat an ice cream cone. These are all a few of the lessons of a cultural broker. Now, the great Minnesota writer Bill Holm, in his book Coming Home Crazy, about his time teaching in China, said something very profound. He said, I may not be an expert on China, but I learned a lot about the United States while I was in China. And that's exactly what I think about my experiences. I'm not even close to being an expert on these 52 different cultures. It was a very steep learning curve just to learn to pronounce people's names properly. At one point, my husband said, I think you know tw 25 guys named Mohammed. I uh, had a lot of trouble just keeping up with immigration and refugee law, enough history about countries that I wouldn't offend people when I asked them about the wars in their countries and so on. But what I did learn a lot about is my town. For example, I'd never had to deal much with the INS. I'd never been in public institutions much that dealt with the indigent and the poor. And I'd been driving by factories that ring my town for years, and they were invisible to me. I'd never actually walked into a factory at the, the killing floor at Alpo or the, the Telex where they make computer boards and so on. And I went to see all those places as part of my work. And what I concluded from this, actually a refugee said this quote, and I like it, is that America for the refugees is the beauty and the beast. We offer refugees so much, 
but we're an incredibly difficult place to learn to navigate. For example, let's just take one thing, education. All refugees are given two very different kinds of education when they arrive in our country. One is by the cultural brokers, the teachers, the librarians, the church people that help them. And the other is by television and advertisers. All our refugees are given a television set when they arrive. Supposedly, it's to help them learn English. But what it actually does is teach them shopping. We educate via advertising. And unfortunately, to these very vulnerable and innocent, in some ways, newcomers, we teach them all the wrong things about uh, nutrition, about uh, sex, about violence, about what's valuable and important. So one of the common experiences of cultural brokers is going someplace where there's Mountain Dew in the baby bottles instead of milk, or the families are buying expensive, junky toys they've seen advertised on television instead of winter coats and gloves, because they're learning from advertisers what to buy. And advertising in general teaches people, not only refugees, but Americans in general, the exact opposite of what every great religious system in the history of the world has taught people. And so we miseducate from the beginning. We teach refugees what we have taught our own citizens. You're the center of the universe. Act impulsively. Don't worry about other people. Your needs are the only important needs. Spend, spend, spend. Don't worry about saving. Be a consumer. Be an addict. That's what's the most fun and rewarding. And not surprisingly, they have no antidotes to this message, and they're quite vulnerable to it. Just one example of that. I went over to a home, and a Muslim man was down on his knees thanking Allah, and he had tears streaming down his face. He was thanking Allah. I have always prayed to you for help. I thank you, Allah, for granting me my wish. I am a rich man now. I will help my family. Well, it turns out he had gotten a magazine sweepstakes in the mail and believed he had won a million dollars. So I had to help him up and hand him a rag to dry his tears and say, you are not a millionaire. This is a, a, this is a false promise to you that you will get a million dollars if you fill out these papers and so on. So money is a very difficult thing and time is a very difficult thing in our country. The two things you have to understand to survive in America are time and money. And many countries um, have such a different view of time than we Americans do. Uh, for example, Bintu, coming from Sierra Leone. She, uh, one time I went to pick her up. She had, been missed, she had missed church that morning. She was crying and she said, I just was starting to understand American time and now it is daylight savings time. You can tell she just almost could not believe we could throw yet one more hitch into the complicated ways we do time. One Latino man said to me, I have learned when Americans say, I'm taking up too much of your time, I'd better beat it. So they start catching on to how organized we are around time. And another refugee said to me, you Americans have invented stress and now with globalization, you're exporting it all over the world. When the refugees, one time I was at a refugee party where the, it was a party where people had been drinking some beer, so they're getting a little wild and unrestrained. Usually the refugees around me were very polite on their absolute best behavior, but 
One of the things they started doing was goofing off and making fun of Americans. And the main thing they were doing was playing around with their watches and going, oh, I am having a great time, but it is 8 o'clock, I must go now. Or, oh, this food is very good, but I must stop eating because it is 6.30. And just making a joke about how we are so imprisoned to our time. But, of course, we have the other cultural brokers that save the day. Teaching people what is good and beautiful in this country and what is uh, toxic and unpleasant and what people need to avoid. And uh, those teachers essentially have the job of helping refugees sort out how to relate to the broader American culture. If we don't help people, if you don't make good intentional decisions about how you relate to American culture, you end up rushed, stressed, unhealthy, addicted, and broke. And the refugees need a lot of help with that. They get a great deal of it from the schools. All of the refugees, one of the common denominators is their love of education. The Kakuma orphans, when they come here, say, we are orphans, but education is our mother and father. There's such a tremendous respect for teachers. And one of the things, actually, that is kind of sad in the schools is the refugee children come in with such respect for education and learning, and then they crash into American kids, for whom some are very respectful, but let's be realistic, a lot aren't. And the refugee kids are absolutely horrified and astounded by how American kids slouch around in class and talk back to teachers and, and don't respect authority the way they have been taught to respect authority. And um, the American kids lose an opportunity to get to know children from such different places. Like this one boy, Boris, um, who's a very interesting story in himself, but he was saying that he had very little interaction with the American kids at the high school. The only thing they wanted from him was how to say swear words in his language. And he kind of foiled them on that. He told them the words for butterfly and rose, and they were running around talking tough and saying those words. And he and his friends thought, of course, this is very funny. <laughs> but one of the things I really liked about the high school kids was they had such respect for their parents. And for example, many of the uh, students I interviewed, when I would say, now that you're in America, what is your dream? By far the most common answer was, I want to make money, I want to get a good education so I can buy a house for my mom and dad. Or one young woman, I said, would you want to get married in an arranged marriage here? Would you want to find your own husband? She goes, I want to have an arranged marriage and I would never marry anyone who would not want my mom and dad to live with us. The Vietnamese have a tradition that if um, you even hear someone speak poorly of their parents, you must walk away from that person or you are betraying your own family. So sometimes, to put this in a more positive way, sometimes there is just an enormously good synergy, a good energy created when Americans and um, people from other countries combine. Like one mother told me that she went to a home to have help some Af Afghani, uh, an Afghan family. And um, we have a lot of Afghans who, ironically, not long ago, the husbands were fighting with the US um, and the Taliban, on the side of the Taliban against the Russians. And they were our last big wave of refugees to come in before 9-11. But it was only women, only widows. And a lot of these women um, 
can't read or write, have never worked outside the home, certainly never driven a car, have never even talked to men who weren't in their families, and are very uncomfortable wearing anything but, but, very, but being totally covered. And many of them have eight or ten kids, and they have a very short time before they're expected to work and support their children. So they're in a difficult spot. And this one friend of mine took her junior high sons, two sons, over, and they picked up the kids from an a Afghan family like this and took to buy them a few school supplies. And she said it was an amazing experience for her sons, that this, this family full of children, Target was like Disneyland to them. They just walked around, their eyes big as saucers, they admired everything, they didn't touch anything, they just were blown away by the pencils and school supplies and the assortment of... One of the daughters saw a big wall of colored underwear and asked if they were butterflies, if these were pictures of butterflies that people would buy. Anyway, the, the boys watched this and, and the children never asked for anything, but when the mother would buy them a, a pair of shorts or a pencil box, they would be so grateful and excited. And the mother said, after that day, her sons changed and they stopped being so greedy that, that it was a significant turning point in how her boys related to the world. And just whether, one other example from this, from churches, um, a brethren minister told me this story, but remember the boy Boris I mentioned who taught swear words to the high school kids? When he came to this country, uh, two weeks before he came to this country, He'd seen his father and his grandfather decapitated in his backyard. So he was just an extremely traumatized kid, but he flies into Lincoln, he gets put up in an apartment by Catholic Social Services, and he's in school trying to learn algebra in his third language within a couple weeks. No therapy, no provisions of any kind for his mental health. And this brethren minister was talking to me, and he said, we did figure out something the refugees really want, and I encourage you to consider this if you're, uh, if you're involved with the church. He said, they need services to, to sort of put to rest their dead. Because so many people running have, have no way to bury their dead, have no way to have any kind of memorial. And so one of the things our churches are starting to do is give um, children like Boris, families like the Afghan women I, I talked about, a place to come and, ha and have a service and bury their dead. And those services are, are oftentimes with, with food and music. And, and just deeply moving for anyone who's involved. Well, my time is running short, and, and I know you'll ask me questions, so let me end on just one last story. Sidney Crouch um, said that all of civilization can basically be boiled down to one word, and that word is welcome. And I think that's a profound statement on Crouch's part. So I want to end with a welcome story. One of the refugees I befriended was a, a young, pregnant Sudanese woman. And she's about six foot two inches tall, Pamela, just blue black. She wore her hair kind of in a top knot, so she was actually about four inches taller than she really was because of her hairstyle. And she needed a checkup at the health center. And that's one of those institutions I've learned about. I go to the health center all the time in Lincoln. And it's really a good institution. The nurses are great and the doctors are great. and and it's free to all the refugees. But everybody, as you might not be surprised here, is always overworked. So we, we go into the health center, we take number 75. Um, Pamela's got on high top purple Converse tennis shoes and a red and white African dress. She's a very striking woman, especially seven or eight months pregnant. 
So we sit down and it's kind of fetid the air in there from too many people. Um, especially as we wait, everybody's starting to unravel and the babies and toddlers are fussing and their parents are getting grumpy and, and the old people are wilting and, and I'm starting to be impatient and look at my watch and think, why am I spending this whole afternoon sitting here with Pamela? I could be doing more important work and I should have just dropped her off and had her call me on my cell phone later. And So anyway, we're sitting, sitting, and time is ticking away. And all of a sudden, this little, I think she's probably Lao, toddler, saw Pamela. And she just, you could tell she was like stunned by how Pamela looked. And she kind of toddled over to her. And she was just staring at Pamela. And the force of this little bait, this little toddler's gaze was so strong that virtually the whole room, which had been pretty loud, just quieted down. And everybody was watching this toddler stare at Pamela. And I, being a kind of a worrier, and I, I was thinking, this could be an unpleasant experience. You know, I mean, maybe this little girl will hurt Pamela's feelings. It, 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 I, I was kind of worried, you know, what will happen next, as were other people. And so we're all watching, I'm not breathing, and all of a sudden this little toddler just gets a great big smile on her face, just a totally big smile, and does this, and blows a kiss at Pamela. And I love this story because I think it's the essence of what we're all dealing with in this country right now. We are constantly meeting the other. There's uneasiness, there's a feeling of, is this person like me? How is it I connect with them? Are we the same? And then with a little bit of patience and work, we can do it. We can find that commonality. And when we do, there's just such joy. There's just this snap of joy that comes to us. And it ends up being deeply rewarding work. So I'll, quote, I'll close the speech portion of this event with a quote from my favorite of all refugees, Anne Frank. How wonderful it is that we need not wait another moment to begin to change the world. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mary Piper. You are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis. I'm Tim Hart Anderson, Senior Minister at Westminster Church and moderator of the Town Hall Forum. Our guest today is author and psychologist, Dr. Mary Piper. While the ushers collect questions from the audience at Westminster, I would like to thank the sponsors of today's forum, the General Mills, Nash, Baker, and Hognander Family Foundations, Special thanks, too, to the Rake Magazine, the Skyway News, the Hyatt Regency Hotel, and the Minneapolis Public Library for their support. We also want to thank the many generous individuals who support our mission to promote public discourse on the critical issues of our time. Dr. Piper, if you would return to the pulpit, I will present the questions from our audience. First, a question about your other work in generational issues, both with uh, children and elders. Uh, what kinds of general generational issues do you see among the immigrants you've worked with? Uh, you did refer to children acquiring language much faster than their parents or elders. Cultural acquisition would be more rapid among the young people. What sorts of generational issues do you see? It's a very good question. Um, first of all, I didn't do nearly as many interviews with older people because they couldn't learn English. And so I had a lot more contact with young people because I could talk to them. 
But a couple things happened. I saw this actually very vividly demonstrated at a workshop. It was with a Vietnamese family, but it could have been with virtually any refugee family. In almost all uh, traditional cultures, there's a, a very uh, rigid hierarchy that begins with the oldest man and goes down to the youngest daughter. That's the hierarchy of power. And when refugees come to this country, that hierarchy is almost totally upended because very rapidly, the youngest daughter is the person who knows the language first and best. And it's the men who have always been powerful. Women learn language a little more quickly than men. It's the men who have the most trouble with language. Maybe a man has been a doctor in his country. He'll be lucky if he gets a job at Alpo in our country. And so there's this upending of power, which can create a lot of family tension. That's one issue. The thing that's most interesting to me is how upset refugees are about the way Americans treat their old people. Because old people are very revered in traditional cultures. And the idea that you would take your aging grandmother, your aging parent, and put them in a rest home or assisted living home is just such an odd concept to refugees and a horrible concept. And many of the refugees end up working, by the way, in assisted living facilities. They do that work no, nobody really wants to do much because it involves lifting and bathing people and so on. And they're amazed at the people who don't even come to visit their families. This is amazing to them. And in fact, one of the things that always happens with me, once I've helped re refugee families a lot, is they say to me, Mary, when you are an old woman, we will take care of you. We want you to come to our home. Because they know in America, people don't make those commitments. And um, just one touching story, Mohammed of Sierra Leone, who came out of that Holocaust in Sierra Leone, works at an assisted living facility in Lincoln. And he said that the older Jewish Holocaust victims love to talk to him. They're very lonely, many of them. Their children have moved away. And because he has been through these experiences, they love to talk to him. And so many of the refugees actually develop very close grandchild-grandparent relationships with old people in our community because they want those relationships. They accept them as a, as a necessary part of a happy life that you would be very close to older people. A question about Native Americans. Uh, what experience have you had with Native Americans, if any, who have migrated to Lincoln, Nebraska from the reservations? And is it or is it not a helpful concept to think of Native Americans as immigrants within our own land, particularly as they come to cities? You know, I haven't had enough experience with Native Americans to do a good job with that. It's a very good question. I'm just not the right person to answer it. Okay, a question about your comment about refugees and immigrants uh, declining therapy. I suspect most of us, if oh. offered a chance to have a therapeutic moment with you, would seize it uh, immediately. But what is the concern there? Why are uh, refugees not likely to accept therapy? Well, that's a very good question. I mean, first of all, in, in, with the exception, you know, we have some Western European refugees from, from uh, the former Yugoslavia and so on, and, and they know what therapy is, and some of them might be willing to have it. But for the most part, Refugees from Africa, from Southeast Asia, um, from many parts of the world ha have no interest in it. First of all, there's no cultural analog for therapy. There's, there's absolutely no concept of when you're upset, when you're traumatized, you go sit in a small room with someone you've never met and tell them how badly you feel and then pay them some money. And they don't do anything for you. It's a very weird concept. And furthermore, then there are se several other barriers to it. 
Of course, some are just plain old barrier issues, access in terms of uh, things like scheduling and money, but I, I didn't have those. I mean, I would go to people's home with a bag of oranges if they wanted to talk to me. And if I just said, if you want to talk to me, they were much more likely to call than earlier when I was saying, I would be happy to come by and do free therapy if you would like it. But there's other issues. For example, in many cultures of the world, you would never speak badly of anyone in your family to anyone outside the family. The idea that this very American thing, if you go into a therapist and you tell the therapist what impossible people your parents are, is a horrifying idea to many people. The other thing is, in many parts of the world, if a woman has been raped, and, and many of the refugee women have been raped, you would never speak of that to anyone. So that many of our ideas of what we do in therapy are, are just, people would never do those things under any conditions. There's also the big issue that most refugees don't believe in this mind-body split that we Americans do. So the whole concept that you talk about your emotions separately from your body is a very odd concept. For example, the Kurdish sisters that I talked about, I, I knew they were traumatized. I knew what had happened to them. But we never talked about trauma in terms of sort of mental health or feelings talk. Every time I went over there, I would go in and I would say, how are you doing? And every one of them would tell me about a pain somewhere in their body. Oh, your arm is hurting today. I am very sad about that. You know, all of their, phys all of their psychological pain was expressed in bodily aches. And by the way, this has serious implications for medical systems because refugees show up with, with head pains or chest pains. A lot of times they're put through an enormous amount of expensive testing and screening when what they're really trying to say is, I'm very sad or my heart feels empty because family members have been lost. Finally, what refugees often associate small rooms where they're being questioned with is torture. So just that whole idea of you get in and sit in a small room with someone you don't know and they ask you questions is one of the most discomforting experiences they can have. Several of our listeners are impressed, as am I, with your cultural fluency. You seem to have uh, gained a, quite a bit of knowledge about the various cultures with which you've been working with immigrants. How do you go about learning about the different cultures, particularly so as not to offend them? I'm really glad I got this question because I'm really not that cultural fluent, uh, and I have made so many mistakes. And that would be one of my, my main things I would want to leave you with if you're considering becoming a cultural broker, becoming more involved with the refugee community, is expect yourself to learn almost everything you learn by trial and error. And, and if you're like me, you will make grievous mistakes. Uh, like for example, one time I misheard a woman. I thought she said her son got a ride to school. And I said, oh, that is very good. Are you happy? And actually what she had said was her son had been hit by a car. And she was furious at me for thinking she would be happy that her son had been hit by a car. So I, I've made my share of, of very big faux pas. But what I generally, what I learned to do, first of all, if you're, if you're a kind, loving person with good manners, that helps a lot. People can sense that, that you don't mean to screw up, that you don't mean to offend them. I always would carry, whenever I went to a new house, which I always was going to new houses, I would carry a bag of oranges and a pack of UNO cards. Anybody can learn to play UNO in about 30 seconds. And it's a real good way to start relating to children and, and kind of give the family something right away. Now, of course, what I learned after this bag of oranges business is I usually left with, you know, more food than I carried in. But still, it was a, a good way to approach people. 
But in terms of the really important things, would you like me to take off my shoes when I enter your house? Uh, is it okay to hug your children? How would you like me to address you and your husband? Uh, I learned to ask these kind of questions. When someone in your family dies, what is the respectful thing to do in your culture? Or for example, if someone called me over because they had lost their job and were afraid they would have no money to feed their children and was absolutely beside themselves, I would say, in your culture, if you had called me to come and help you, what would I do if I were your friend from your culture? So a lot of it was just learning to ask questions that allowed people to tell me how, would, how, how, how could I help them deal with something. For example, with Paul, uh, the youngest of the Kakuma refugees, for a while he was in a foster home. He had a very bad time with his foster dad. And so one time I was over talking to him and his foster dad. And I said, Paul, when you were uh, in Africa living along the Nile and you got angry, what did the Dinka people do? How did you deal with your anger in the Dinka? And he said, well, we would kill the person. And I go, okay, okay, what else? He said, we would ignore the person and just pretend we had no feelings. Okay, okay, what else? Well, we would go out and walk around in the bush for several days until we were no longer mad. Well, I realized he, has, he cannot do any of the three things that people would do in a Dinka village. So if I'm going to be helpful to him as a Dinka living with a, a, a rigid foster care dad, I am going to have to help him create a new idea of how to deal with anger. So a lot of it is just learning to ask very good questions. And I was really lucky between having a cultural anthro background and a therapist background. I, I, I had a little bit of skill. But you don't need much skill. What you really need is good intentions and, and a willingness to, to be humble and learn and, and to tolerate your own original anxiety and, and mistakes. A question about the context into which these immigrants are coming. What has been the reaction, the response of the local community in general to immigrants moving into the area? Well, in middle of everywhere I talk about, um, as all behaviors, uh, response to the refugees occurs on a continuum. And there's, there's some people over here that are deeply prejudiced against people who are not like them. And in fact, I've given a few speeches, not only in Nebraska, but around, particularly around the Midwest, where I've had like Ku Klux Klan members and various small hate groups show up and, and leave me notes, letting me know they're watching me. And there's a, there's a, a, a racist, intolerant, very fearful, small group of people everywhere. On the other hand, over on this side, there's another small group of people who would do anything for the refugees. They give them cars, they work tirelessly for them, and fortunately, I know almost all those people in Lincoln. And whenever we walk in, say, our big public library downtown, it is packed with mostly uh, our, our elders, senior citizens, bending over a table with a, a dark-skinned person with a furrowed brow, teaching them to read or write or helping them practice their English. We have an enormous number of people who are, are really stepping up to the plate and helping. Then in between, there's a large group that I would call, I call in the book JPI, Just Plain Ignorant. And that, that doesn't mean they have bad feelings, they just don't understand the issues. They don't realize how many people are coming in, how desperate people are, uh, how, how wonderful it could be for them if they were involved as a learning experience, how needed they are in that community, and so on. And they also have a lot of miscon misconceptions, like we actually, in our last, not this last election, but two years ago, 
We had a man run for governor of our state who his main platform was, if elected, he would insist that refugees and immigrants pay taxes. Well, refugees and immigrants do pay taxes. They actually pay taxes without representation, and they also pay taxes without rebates. And so when you have someone like that running for governor, it's not, um, it's not impossible to imagine many other people are ignorant. The other one that people say is, well, why can't they just learn English? My own reaction to that when people ask me that is, I had an a, a opportunity to go as a Rockefeller scholar to Bellagio, Italy a few years ago, about three. And um, I decided before I went, I would work six months on learning Italian so that I could get around a little bit. So I listened to tapes and I, I bought books and I wrote out word lists and I, I practiced in my car driving around all the time. And by the time I got to Italy as a 54-year-old woman, I could barely say prego. And that really gave me a lot of respect for an overwhelmed Afghan widow with 11 kids who's trying to learn to drive so she can go to work at a beef packing or a, a pasta plant, learning somehow in the interstices of her life, a traumatized person, how to speak English. So there's a lot of... Uh, a lot more education um, really needs to exist around these issues, and that's one reason I'm really happy to be here today. I hope this, this talk around the state encourages people to learn more and get more involved with their refugee communities. Thank you, Mary Piper, for exploring with us the ways in which our culture is both challenged and shaped by the newest wave of refugees and immigrants to the United States. Let's express our gratitude to Dr. Piper.